Welcome to The Socialist Program. This is the audio of our monthly seminar. Subscribe and support this programming at patreon.com slash the socialist program to join live once a month and ask Brian Becker your questions and listen to them as soon as they come out. Thanks so much for your help in keeping this independent show going. We can make this program with you, but not without you. We're going to go to the questions, some of which we received ahead of time. We're already getting some questions in the chat. So this is from Laurel Herndon. I find the logic and morality of moving to a socialist system inescapable. U.S. billionaires, however, have amassed far too much power. They will never willingly surrender the means of production. And it seems unlikely at this point that any opposition will be adequate to counter them. Has the U.S. bourgeois system progressed too far? Are we beyond the point of being able to access an off-ramp from capitalism? No, definitely not. In fact, our whole thesis is that socialism is more likely to be revived here than in many other places in the world, principally because capitalism has developed the means of production to such a high degree that the problems in society could be easily solved with socialist planning, socialist organization. But the point there is that are the billionaires, in a way, is their power too strong, their power too institutionalized so that it can't be undone? But this comes to the basic issue, like no ruling class in history has ever given up its privileges without a fight. Like the people always want peaceful change. I mean, The last thing people want is violence. You want to be able to have a way to change society basically without revolution. And the reason revolutions happen, it's when the old ruling class shuts down any possibility for reform or meaningful reform within the system at a time when masses of people have become deeply political, deeply active, And at the same time, the old ruling class has its own internal contradictions such that they can't use all of the instruments of repression that they would normally use in the day-to-day world when everything is, quote, normal. So in other words, when the government or the forces of the ruling class become paralyzed by their internal contradictions, that's when real radical and even revolutionary change can take place. I believe that once that process unfolds under those kinds of circumstances, one, millions of people are politically ready to go. They're ready to fight. They have organizations that they now trust and believe in, organizations that know, you know, through experience, people learn, oh, they know when when we say, let's go forward and ask and demand for more, let's be more militant, let's do that. And there are other times when you have to step back and retreat. People learn, well, what organizations actually know what they're doing? What organizations are always there? Which organizations are always consistent? So people learn that the organizations that exist are their organizations, even if they haven't yet become members, they start to have trust in the organizations. So you have an activated population, you have organizations that are serious, that have won the confidence of people, the crisis in society, which may be solvable, can't be solved because the ruling class won't solve it. 
because it doesn't want to, you know, impact on its own privileges. And at the same time, the ruling class also becomes politically factionalized and paralyzed as a consequence. That's when the doors open for truly radical and revolutionary change. So there has to be a combination of circumstances, multiple cascading crises, could be a pandemic, could be a pandemic and climate catastrophe, a pandemic climate catastrophe and a profound economic crisis, or another imperialist war. You know, all of these major societal crises happening simultaneously creates those kind of circumstances where the old ruling class that seems so powerful will suddenly seem to be so weak. And it's precisely at that time where people's power really can make all the difference. So that's sort of the conditions that are necessary for that kind of really radical change. Thanks, Brian. So we have a a number of other questions. A couple are coming in about the anti-war movement. So I think maybe it makes sense to move to those next. So here's a question from Ryan. Is there precedent to socialists joining the military to organize within it? Is that something that could make sense today? Yes, there are many examples of people doing that. Of course, at the beginning of World War II, when after Pearl Harbor, the left forces generally the Communist Party, the Socialist Workers Party, the Socialist Party, the main socialist and communist groups in the country, like the rest of the country, they went into the military. And by the way, some of those radicals at the end of the war in 1945, the U.S. was still positioning its troops all over Asia because it was trying to take the place of Japanese colonialism in the domination of Asia in particular. There was a big bring the boys home, bring the GIs home now movement. We came to fight in the war against fascism, but not to occupy Asian territories. That became a very big movement in 1945, 46, in the early part of 47. In Vietnam, a lot of people started joining the military to organize against the military from within. Andy Stapp, who was the chairperson of the American Servicemen's Union, was one of those people. He was a radical. He was, I don't know, 22, 23 years old. He went into the military. He helped expand an already existing GI newspaper called The Bond. I was a supporter of the American Servicemen's Union at that time. As a matter of fact, when I got my draft notice to go into the military, I was drafted in 1971. I actually distributed the bond at my draft physical, this anti-war newspaper of GIs. And a lot of people were doing that. And some people were already in the military and became anti-war as a result of their experience in Vietnam. But because GI organizing became such a potent part of the anti-war movement, a lot of young people, young anti-war people decided to join the military to organize within the military. I personally also wanted to do that. And I wouldn't have gone to Vietnam. I would have then, when I got the orders to go to Vietnam, I would have resisted those orders. And like other people who were following the same tactic, then you would go to jail. You'd go to prison for some length of time. But we wanted to sort of organize inside the military to undermine the military because anti-war organizing among GIs was very strong. And the GIs coming out of the military, the veterans, 
were playing a really important role in all of the anti-war demonstrations, by, especially by 1970-71. Huge numbers of young, mostly men, who had just come back from Vietnam were at the front ranks of the anti-war protests. Many of them were wearing their uniforms. They were extremely militant, of course, because of their experience. But yeah, so there was that kind of anti-war organizing going on. By the way, during the Iraq war, the Answer Coalition started a task force for GIs and veterans. And we recruited quite a number of anti-war soldiers or Marines or people who had just you know, come back from Iraq or Afghanistan. And that organization eventually morphed into an organization called March Forward. And Mike Preisner, who many of you would have seen, along with Marissa Sanchez, had a chance to confront George W. Bush for his war crimes. Mike was a leader of March Forward, and that was an affiliate group with the Answer Coalition. And March Forward organizers who were returning veterans themselves went to a lot of military bases all over the country with anti-war leaflets, the message of the anti-war movement, and of course, a movement of support for the soldiers, the veterans. You know, there was an epidemic of suicides and health problems and PTSD. Anyway, March Forward was an organization of soldiers and veterans that had many functions, but it was first and foremost anti-war. So, from a radical point of view, it's always important to organize within the military. After the Russian Revolution, when the Third International was formed, when the socialist movement split into a socialist movement and a communist movement, the communist movement being those socialists around the world who supported the Russian Revolution, it was actually enshrined in membership in order to be a party that could join the Third International you had to pledge that you would do organizing within the military. So even if you weren't sending people into the military, you were trying to recruit soldiers, sailors, Marines, or however the military forces were organized in respective countries. That's all for this preview. If you'd like access to the rest of this seminar and our entire archive of exclusive seminars with Brian Becker, become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program. We are an independent show and we cannot make this programming without you. Thanks so much for your support. 